0: Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Baucom, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. All right, Columbia, just for you today, I have a big reveal. Are You ready? I mean, this is huge. I'm just telling you, this is big news. Are you ready for it? I mean, if you're not ready for it, I guess. You know. All right. All right. You ready? Here we are. Commanders. Oh, wait. Uh, am I am I too late? Oh, I'm sorry. Too soon. It's just too soon. I, I mean, uh, so supposedly a lot of uh, polling uh, went into this. The longest name in the NFL. Ten, ten letters. Uh, a lot of polling supposedly went into this, so I'm, I'm just curious. Let me see if I can find out out there. How many of you really like this name? Let me see. Can I you raise your hands? Okay, there are a few. There are a few. How many of you really hate this name? Raise your hand. And how many of you just really don't care? Raise your hand. And I'm, I'm afraid that's going to be the deal. Now, I got to tell you, I don't, I, don't, I don't love this name personally. I, I'm, I'm sure I'll get used to it, but I don't love it. I am not among those who thought we should hang on to the old name. I thought it was the right thing to do to let that go. If that was a wound to many people, then you know there's just no point in it. Uh, but I, I, I didn't. I didn't see this one coming until it was revealed about you know two months before it was revealed, and so and so I, I just. I just don't know quite what to do with. I mean, how do you shorten this? Is it HTTC now? I mean, how do you go? Hail to the commies. Is that how it goes? Or, you know, and and the day, the day that it was that it was chosen, I mean, to be revealed. So I know it's like 2222 and everything, but you know, did it not strike because I haven't heard anyone say this. Did it not strike anyone else as strange that this was groundhog day? I mean, um, this whole team feels like Groundhog Day, right? And so, you know, there was Groundhog Day and Dan Snyder came out of his hole, saw his shadow, and it's six more years of losing. Just so you know, that's what happened really on Groundhog Day. And, you know, I I mean, come on, uh, you know, unfortunately, the name... It wasn't even remotely the most offensive thing about this team and its culture. So, you know, to quote Mr. Reagan, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Mr. Snyder, sell this team. Sell this team. Doesn't Jeff Bezos need a football team? I think he does. I feel like he does. I mean, this culture's got to shift and it's got to change. But let's face it, when it comes to this particular name, you'll love it if they start winning. That, that's the truth. I mean, honestly, if they, if you know, 30 years ago this week, the last time we won a Super Bowl, 30 years ago, that's just unreal to me. Now, look, I was so excited. I've been, a, I've been a Washington football team. We should have just held on to that one. I've been a Washington football team fan for my whole life. My grandfather was when he pastored in D.C., started a church there. My father's always been a big fan. My dad and I Watched games together every single Sunday afternoon, both of us in his lounge chair. I mean, I grew up watching Billy Kilmer throw ducks and um and and Sonny Jurgensen come on to rescue the game at the end. I mean, I loved them when they were down, I loved them when they were up. I love this team, and I'm gonna keep loving this team because this is our team. Good or bad. This is, this is our team in this community. When I came here, I was pretty excited. I mean, uh, so I got to show you something. This is a, a Daryl Green commemorative jersey. And on the back, it says, to Jim, welcome to Columbia, Daryl Green. It doesn't get any better than that right there. That's 19 years ago when I thought we still had a chance. And, you know, I knew... Uh, the history. I knew that Joe Gibbs and and Joe Bugle were members here at Columbia in the big winning days. I knew that was true. And right when I came back, the news came out that Joe Gibbs was coming back as as coach. And he actually came one Sunday for old time's sake and was in the congregation. And afterwards, I talked to him and I said, man, I'm so excited to have you back. And he said, that's great. But I got to tell you, you know, we're staying in Charlotte. And we're going to use what was then called Redskin 1 to commute back and forth here. Oh, I was so disappointed. That's why it didn't work if he'd come here. uh, Am I right? I mean, you you go back and you do the things that work. I'm just saying, if Riverboat Ron would come to Columbia, this team would win again. I I know that this is true. So, So at the end of the day, you know, that didn't happen. And a lot of other things didn't happen too. But mark my words. If this team returns to winning ways after some 30 years, if they get back to that kind of a cycle and a a rhythm, you'll love the commanders. You will adopt the name and you will forget, if you don't like it, that you didn't. Because in our culture, not just in the NFL, but in our culture, it all boils down to winning And losing. I don't know that there's any culture in the history of the world where that's ever been more the case, though that really is the way of of the world. You know, if it's not enough for you just to root for your team or for another team that you might like, I really kind of enjoyed the Bills this year. I mean, the Bills are the last team that we beat for the Super Bowl 30 years ago, but really enjoyed watching Josh Allen and seeing that team progress. I hope they would move forward, kind of pulling for For the underdog next week too. Uh, But if if it's not enough for you, then of course you can you can move to to fantasy football. A lot of you play fantasy football and then it becomes all about individual effort. And there's nothing more American than individualism. So you can just pull for those and you can you can you know you can watch the last twenty yards of every play on television and you can spend all of your time. I mean, for me the NFC East is fantasy football enough. That's enough fantasy right there. But But I I don't enjoy that, but it it, it gives you another stake in the game. So you can play the winner-loser game even more. And if that's not enough for you, in case you haven't seen the commercials, you can gamble. That has just become the big thing. I'm amazed at how we're going into gambling hook, line, and sinker. I advise you to stay away, not because just of the right and wrong, though that's enough, but because of what it does to your soul, of what it of the addiction that it creates in your brain, of what is proven, it's like a drug. But if, if you need the excitement or the energy of, of a winner and a loser, and you want to somehow be, be that winner or that loser, then, then that's all in now too. I mean, we're going to raise the stakes and raise the stakes and raise the stakes because in our brains, our little pea-sized brains, it is all about winning and losing. Now, look, that may be okay for sports, and it may be okay for some other things. But I'm going to tell you that the Bible flies directly in the face of that worldly understanding of how things ought to work. Jesus' teaching over and over again overturns it. Matthew 5, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, love those who persecute you and pray for them. Jesus saying the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The one who would serve me must be servant of all over and over and over again, but Christians don't seem to want to see it. Jesus just completely undercuts. It's completely countercultural. He undercuts everything the world knows about winners and about losers. In fact, at the end of the day, a lot of Of what we do interpersonally, and a lot of what we do every day is about our notion or understanding of winning and losing and whether we are currently winning the game or losing the game. So, if we feel we are slighted, if we feel that we have been undercut, if we feel we're on the bottom of the deck and we want to get back to the top, if we want to get even, you've heard it before, haven't you? Don't get mad which is, of course, the silliest statement ever because the reason you want to get even is because you are mad. You seek to take retribution. You seek vengeance. You look for a way to get back on top because that's, that's fallen human nature. That is busted, broken human nature. It's rooted in shame and sin, and it is everything that controls this world that we live in. Now, when we talk about taking offense, we get into this series, None Taken, about how not to be defensive, how to start loving life. When we talk about those things, we have to recognize in ourselves the impulse for retribution. It can be slow and boiling, and we can look for it over time, revenge somewhere down the road. We can plot for it, plan for it. It can be violent or it can be imaginary. It can take all sorts of forms, but often it is just instantaneous. Right here, right now, you somehow got the upper hand and I'm going to try to get it back. And that's what vengeance is. One of the greatest freedoms we have in Christ is not to take offense. And therefore, one of the greatest freedoms we have in Christ is not to require or need revenge, or to think it is even remotely constructive. This freedom is our power. It is our glory. Because defensiveness bypasses true repentance and growth, as we've been learning, and because Solomon was right in Proverbs 19, verse 11, a person's wisdom yields patience. It's one's glory to overlook an offense. Now I want to turn our attention to the section of Scripture in which Paul deals most clearly with retribution and vengeance, in which he fleshes out this teaching of Jesus, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, turn the other cheek, I say to you, love your enemy and pray for the one who persecutes you. And that is found in Paul's systematic theology. The greatest letter he ever wrote, the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 12, in one paragraph, he gives us something of a code, if you will, for living out Jesus' clear teaching about winning and about losing. And what winning really means and losing really means. So Paul begins in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, Bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse them. Bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse them. Now, let's be clear about who Paul was, because Paul would have been a great Washingtonian. He was an attorney. He was a lawyer, trained as a Pharisee among Pharisees by the finest legal thinkers of his day. The Apostle Paul knew all about the law of retribution. In fact, what you may or may not know is that Jesus quotes the law of retribution found in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 21, when he says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it was a radical advance from anything that had come before it, or at least well before it. The first time this appears in legal strictures is in the Code of Hammurabi, that that, that ancient Babylonian document that is such a, an amazing thing, an amazing piece of law. And, and it said, look, if you take vengeance, if you take retribution, you can only do it to the measure you've been injured. So it was called measured retaliation or, or measured retribution. And the Jewish law, it picks up on this and says, you do not have the right to catapult your anger, above what has been done for you. All you have the right to do is to take simple vengeance. Now, across history, vengeance has been thought to play something of a social function. And I suspect that if I got into a deep conversation with you, I would discover that many of you actually believe this, that vengeance has an important function. And its function has been typically to express aggression in measured ways, and we would think to provide some sort of emotional release or catharsis. Now, the problem we now know, modern research has clearly discovered through everything from brain scan to studies that are done, what we now know is that retribution does not accomplish any of that. In fact, the person who chooses to punish one who has hurt them is injured more. Than they would be had they not sought the punishment. What it does is it keeps the wound open. As counselors say, it keeps the wound green, it keeps it fresh, it keeps anger stoked and kindled. It it keeps us in a constant state of of arousal. it, it does not accomplish what we tend to think that it does. But lex talionis became entrenched in legal code. Lex talionis was the name in Roman code, and now it is entrenched in our legal code. It it is in everything from our understanding of international relations to to what we do on the streets of our cities to, to what we do even interpersonally, one with the other. Jesus said it's not enough. It's unacceptable. He goes way beyond, does Jesus. He says no... You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. I say, love your enemy and pray for the one who persecutes you. And Paul, as the Pharisee, trained in this law of retribution, among other things, knowing full well everything the Old Testament said, everything the law said of his day. Paul knew it wasn't enough, and so he walks 10 steps further and takes that revolutionary teaching of Jesus, and he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, on its surface, Paul's teaching, if we only were to take bits and pieces of it, if we proof-texted Romans chapter 12 in a few ways, we cut out a couple of what he things he said, then we could say, well, what Paul is saying is just don't react. Don't be reactionary. So if someone does something to you, just ignore them. That's what my mama taught me. If you ignore them, they'll go away. Did your mama teach you that? The problem is sometimes I ignored them and they didn't go away. What Paul says is way beyond anything that we've seen except the teaching of Jesus, and he's bought full into the teaching of Jesus, and so he moves out beyond that and says, "You actually should go on the offensive with Christ's love. Stop being defensive. Go on the defensive, on the offensive with Christ's love, and at the end of the day, he will ask us to overwhelm evil with good. Bless those. Active. Bless those. Responsive. Bless those. Engaging. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. He wants this teaching to be practical and he wants it to make sense to those who are reading because for them, this is revolutionary and this is new. These are people in Rome, they know the Roman law, and these are people of faith, they know the Old Testament. And Paul wants them to be able to listen to Jesus and take a step way beyond, and so he tells them what that means. The next thing he says, Is rejoice with those who mourn, who rejoice, and mourn with those who mourn. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that this is the first of three virtues that Paul mentions that make it possible. For followers of Jesus who are transformed by his love, his grace, and the presence of the Holy Spirit, three virtues that we have that make us able to do what others are not, and that is to bless those who persecute us, bless and not curse them. We can go beyond because we have been transformed and we have been changed. In fact, we have been forgiven through the cross of Jesus, and we know that the weight of that grace, the weight of that forgiveness, is so great that anything we would do to emulate it would be small by comparison. We understand that. We are chief among sinners. And because we are, we look differently at the population around us. So when Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, it's not just a simple throw-in sentence in the middle of this section. He's telling us something, and that is that we have a virtue that could be called empathy for others. We have the capacity to walk in another man or another woman's shoes. We have the capacity to ask the question, what woundedness and what hurt and what pain is being expressed by this person who is, by extension, wounding and hurting and causing me pain? Where is this coming from? What is the reason for it? In that little space that exists between stimulus and response There's the capacity for us to stop and to look and to listen, to think carefully about what is happening in this moment. I was in a strange conflict with someone recently, and that's not unusual for pastors. We're constantly being bombarded in some ways. Any leader is today. It's a tough day to be a leader. And this person just seemed to be amplified and coming out of nowhere. And I was like, what in the world is going on here? And, and at first I started because too often I do this just to respond to the actual thing they were saying or to the actual question that was being asked. I, I do that way too often. I, if I act too quickly, I'll just react to what's being thrown out. But instead something told me to pick up the phone and call this person and, and I just asked them, is there something going on that I need to know about? They started by saying, what do you mean? I just want to deal with this issue. And I said, I understand that. And we can deal with this issue. But, but there's something going on. I feel it. There's something, there's something weighing on you. There's something that's really heavy. I don't know what you mean. They said, well, maybe I'm wrong. If I am, I, I apologize for this phone call. But I, I just thought maybe before we talked about this thing, I could ask you, is there some way in which you're deeply wounded that you might want to share with me? There's a moment of silence, and then the person on the other end of the line just breaks down in tears. They just start weeping and they start pouring out their heart to me about something that's happened to them that actually is a pretty terrible thing. It's a pretty horrible thing about the anger they feel, about the hurt they feel. They don't know what to do with it, don't know where to go with it, and it was rooted in a relationship in the church. And so that made it tougher for them, right? Because this is my brother in Christ in this case. This person is supposed to be someone who loves me and cares for me, and they have deeply hurt and and wounded me. And so I'm talking through this with them and after we finish that conversation, I go, do you want to go back now and deal with the issue you presented? Do you know what the person said? No. I don't even care about that right now. What happens for us is that that what we're dealing with in the moment gets loaded with all the sin and the brokenness in our lives, and we become coiled springs that are waiting to be unleashed at the slightest provocation just as an excuse to vent it all. And it doesn't work. When we vent it, we feel worse. Do you agree with me on this? Because I've done it. So I can tell you, I know from personal experience, I don't need a brain scientist to tell me. I don't need a counselor to tell me that when I take vengeance in the moment, it only amplifies the situation and makes me feel worse about me and who I am. What I discovered with this person is what I've seen so many other times, and that is that if I can figure out where the anger and the pain is coming from, really, I can get much closer to resolving the issue with this person than I can if I just deal with the surface threat. Paul says that we have the capacity to empathize with others. That is a virtue. Then he goes on to say, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position in the world standards. Do not be conceited, narcissistic, self-centered. So the second thing that he says that we have, this virtue, is a virtue of selfless humility. You know, it's always obvious to everybody except the person who is seeking revenge It's always obvious to everyone else that this is an amazingly narcissistic pursuit. When we are angry, we put ourselves at the center of the world. Everything is about us and therefore none about Jesus, none about Christ. And what happens when we put ourselves at the center and start to think that our feelings and our thoughts are indicative of what is actually happening all the time? And we desire to be right more than we want to be righteous. When that happens, we become a danger to everyone around us, a danger to ourselves and an enemy to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It scares me that this can happen to me, and it does. I'm not the only one, I know. I've had people share with me enough over this period. But when I start to see myself as the center of a situation, immediately I am going to go off the rails. What I'm going to do is going to be harm, harmful. Now, the reality is there are always at least two parties involved in these situations and, and usually more. And, and the question is, are we capable of laying down this narcissistic individualism that our culture calls winning? Can we put that down and take on the mantle of Jesus Christ who died and rose again to change and transform the world that we live in, to change and transform us, do we have the capacity to become selfless? I'm telling you, what Paul's asking us to do here is very, very hard. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and never curse them. What he's asking us to do is among the most difficult things we will ever attempt, and yet it is the very heart of the gospel and the very center of our transformation. Now let me say this, there is a center in which you should, a-, a way in which you should become the center of these situations, but here's the way it is to be accomplished, and that is through the continued transformation of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. These moments where we want revenge offer us opportunities to see ourselves deeply and to allow the Holy Spirit to see us more deeply. They give us chances to find out what cranks our chain, what makes us move. And whenever that happens, we can focus on how God is changing us. It's that kind of interesting when you talk to people who today, there are a lot of professional negotiators. There's some in this congregation. Uh, there are people who do this for a living nationally, internationally, corporately. They do all these things, and they have words for different kinds of vengeance. And one of the words that they have, I, I think it's not a very good label, honestly, but it's called constructive revenge. <laughs> so constructive revenge means that you venge the situation by becoming a better person than the person who has wounded you. There's still a competition involved, and that's a bit problematic. But it's that notion of killing them with kindness. You know, I don't, I don't really like that expression either, kill them with kindness, because it's really not what Jesus was talking about, but at least it gets farther than most of us are. So the real notion is about becoming a better person and thereby proving Your uprightness in the situation. You know, the problem is when we're seeking revenge, friends, I'm going to tell you, we always think we're just and right. We think we're fighting for honor. And therefore, when we're seeking revenge, we always feel justified in what we do. But the real question is, are we justified in the eyes of Christ? Are we justified in the eyes of God? Paul continues, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So the third virtue that we are told we have by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us is unimpeachable character. We are being made righteous by the love of Jesus. Our character is unimpeachable. I think sometimes we forget how important this is. And in a moment, Paul's going to tell us why it's important, so I'm going to come back to this. But one of the things that's always captured me about Acts chapter 2 and the first church after Pentecost, I'm sure you've read this section before, the very first church that attended to the apostles' teaching ate in each other's homes with glad and generous hearts, the people who came to worship all the time, those people who had these certain qualities, warm welcome, things that we talk about expressing as a congregation. And one of the, the biggest ones is what you as a congregation have called demonstrated integrity, and that is that we do actually care what others think, not just inside the church, but outside the church. Now, they can agree or disagree with us on moral and ethical standards, and that's, that's all right. We shouldn't expect the world to affirm our morals candidly. We shouldn't because the world is the world. And we are the church of Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't expect them to affirm us because we live such good lives. We shouldn't expect that. But what we should expect is that they should be able to look at us and say, those people are kind. Those people are gracious. Those people are generous. Those people are loving. Those people are respectable. Those people seek to do what is right. They have unimpeachable character. See, I can disagree with you on something and still think that your character is sterling. And the problem with vengeance is that it besmirches our character. So when the church of Jesus Christ becomes angry and starts to lash out at the culture, and by the way, within the church, at each other, aren't you tired of it? Aren't you sick of the culture? When we do this, we are saying to the world, Jesus hasn't changed anything about us, We're precisely like you. You can't trust us any more than you can trust yourselves, and most people don't even trust themselves. Unimpeachable character, demonstrated integrity, means that the way we act in response to the world demonstrates that Jesus has done something to us that nothing else can. We have started to care more about being righteous even than we do about being right, and everyone wants to be right. That's just... That's just human nature. But we want to be righteous more. Now, if these three qualities or virtues make it possible for us to bless those and not curse them who persecute us, then it is because of two beliefs or convictions that Paul points out. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, at this point, let me point out something to you, and that is once again, you are not what you feel. Your feelings are temporary signs or indications of what is happening right here and right now. And you are not even what you think, though that is what we tend to believe in our culture. You are what you do in alignment with your values, which is why Paul says do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Not think what is right, not believe what is right. That's important, but do what is right. But that doing is rooted in these two beliefs. The first one he points out is the one I just read, and that is that God intends for people to live in peace, or what the Bible calls shalom. That is his desire for creation. That is what he calls us to be involved in, his desires that we live in peace. And because you and I believe this, then we act in ways that seek to redeem the moment and the relationships. We're not trying to win. We're not trying to lose either, candidly. In this sense, we are just trying to redeem the situation, which as I'll show you in a moment, will make us winners. But the second quality that he talks about or the second belief that those virtues are rooted in is this, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God to do his work in judging and avenging. It's written, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 32. So vengeance belongs to God. It's not yours. It is not mine. It's not mine to pick up in the first place, but in the sense that our culture has picked it up, I am free to lay it at the foot of the cross. I'm free to leave this burden of vengeance on God. Because at the end of the day, I really do believe that judgment is God's and He will avenge anything that disrupts that peace that He created. Do you believe that? The question really is, do you believe that? Because I, I think an awful lot of people feel like they've got to get satisfaction right here and right now and they can't really trust God for it. Paul says these virtues or this way of being is aligned with these beliefs we have. God intends for his people to be at peace and second, judgment is God's and we trust him to avenge. By the way, this is called divine justice or divine retribution. In the words of negotiators, secular negotiators, it is called divine retribution. And that's when people say, there is something higher than me. Uh, for some, let's call it a higher power. For you and I, it's the one true living creator, God, expressed in Jesus Christ. There is, there is this thing that will judge in the end what has been done. And I am not responsible for being the world's cop you noticed how many people these days think it is their responsibility to parent the world do you feel this way sometimes something that has absolutely nothing to do with them absolutely nothing to do with them and they're responsible for parenting the world i heard recently about someone i know who was with another person i know and this person that i know with the other person I know, was with that person who knew, who pulled up in a car to someone who was beside them. Now, let let me get this straight in your mind. They weren't behind them. They weren't in front of them. They were just beside them in another lane. And they were on their cell phone because nobody does that. But they were on their cell phone in the car, which in the state, I think where they are happens to be illegal, as it is in the Commonwealth of Virginia, not that that stops anybody. And this person, who this person I know knows, this person laid on the horn to judge the person who was beside them. Now, you know, this completely solved the problem. That person put their phone down, and they said so sorry, and they changed their behavior forever. (laughs) This feeling we have sometimes, and Christians have it worse than others, that God has given us somehow responsibility to judge the world and to police the world and has given us the responsibility to be everyone's mom and dad is sick and unhealthy and it does terrible things to us and it is a form of vengeance because we're taking revenge on the world. We're angry about a bunch of stuff and this just happens to encapsulate it. Again, we've become that coiled spring just waiting for something to hit the button that causes it to unleash and unfurl. And when that happens to many of us, it surprises even us, doesn't it? How much that spring has been allowed to load within us. These are powerful beliefs. Then Paul concludes, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy Your enemy is thirsty. Give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, many of you love this expression. Now we're talking about killing people with kindness. We actually can be kind to someone and thereby damage them in some way and get retribution. But this is the problem. You don't know what Paul's contemporary readers knew, and that is that he was quoting Proverbs 25, 21, and 22, and that there's a specific reference to a habit here that everyone in Paul's day knew, but you didn't. And that is, in Egypt, there was a form of penance, and and this form of penance actually made its way into other cultures. It was an ancient form that when someone was penitent, when they were trying to, to, to make penance for something terrible that they had done, the habit was that they would carry a pan of burning coals around on top of their head to signify the searing power of whatever was calling them to repent. Of course, there's some pain involved there. It's hard to do, etc. But the goal here is repentance, not wounding or damage. So you think he pulls on somebody's head, that'll burn them up. But Paul is thinking about repentance. And so what he's saying is, that you need to make sure that you act in such a way that you are seeking the repentance of the person who is doing damage. Your hope is to be involved in the cosmic struggle between good and evil. Your hope is actually not that you only become a better person, but that the person who is wounding you becomes a better person. Your hope is for the restoration of that person. And lovingly, like Jesus, you are caring for that one or that group of people. On the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Our kindness, proactive kindness, our kindness to those who offend us issues a call to repentance, and in that sense makes us Christ-like. So Paul concludes, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now look, I love this scripture. I've always loved this verse, but, but this time it hit home. I, I don't know why, but what I do when I prepare to preach is to read a passage over and over and over again until it outlines itself, until I figure out what's really being said. And this time I just kept parking on this verse. I just kept reading it over and over. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And suddenly it struck me that I have bought into false choices and that the real choice is presented to me here. The choice here is not merely, not merely between retribution, and leaving vengeance to God. That's part of it. But the choice here is between being overcome by evil, that is, evil controls me, or to overcome it. That's a huge choice. This is a huge trade. I mean, it's an enormous trade. In Christ, we actually overcome evil with good, in order to truly win. Not by the world's standards, but by Christ's. And let me show you something cool here. I was reading this passage in the Greek, and I ran across two words I don't see very often. One of the things that happens when you read in the Greek a lot is that you start to recognize when something's unique, when you don't see it that often. And it's not that this appears nowhere else, but it's pretty rare. And these are these two words that mean to be overcome by and to overcome. So to be overcome by is a translation of the word niko. And niko is a a fascinating Greek word because it doesn't appear that much in the Bible. There are some forms of it that do, but not this. One and then nika, it's the same word in a different form, and it literally, 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 literally means to lose and to win, to lose and to win. So, what Paul literally says is, Don't be a loser. By seeking retribution. Do not be a loser by taking offense. Do not be a loser by being defensive. But instead, be a winner by becoming involved in the cosmic struggle between good and evil. And this is why it matters, okay? So we have to be careful here that we don't become therapeutic in this study. I I don't mean that there's no therapeutic value. The Bible is loaded with therapeutic wisdom. I mean, you can't really miss it. But this is not just all about you becoming a better person because that's still narcissistic and self-centered. And this is not just about you having better relationships, though I really do desire that for you. And this is not just about our church being healthy, though that's really important to me. This is about the cosmic struggle between good and evil and whether we will really be involved in that or we will buy into the values of the world and what the world says is winning and what the world says is losing. Because see, here's what happens. When we start to want to be right in the moment and when we focus, on winning a particular battle, a temporal battle, we lose the eternal war. That's huge. In in fact, the contrary is true also, or the corollary, and that is that if we can stay involved in the eternal battle between good and evil and recognize this is our eternal purpose for reason, uh, for being. This is the reason we were created. This is what Christ's love is all about. If we stay involved in that, then the petty struggles of the moment start to look very different to us because we're not trying to win in the world's perspective. We're trying to win people in Jesus' name. And we start to be focused on redeeming the moment, redeeming the situation and God's act of redeeming the persons who are wounding us out of their own woundedness. And once we become involved in that cosmic struggle, nothing else compares. There's only one other place where we see this form of Niko and Nikai in the New Testament, and it's in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, another of my favorite scriptures. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Everyone born of God wins. This is the victory that has won in the world, even our faith. Who is it that wins? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God whose actions align with their convictions. We are winners when we choose not to take offense and go on the offense with God's love. We're winners. We're engaged in the cosmic, we're superheroes, engaged in the cosmic struggle between good and evil. In Jesus' name, we are a part of the big struggle, and all eternal victories are won in that sphere. And what happens is if we start to focus on just the wins and losses right here and right now, we can lose sight of the culture. Isn't that, after all, what happens to a team that cares about nothing but wins and losses, doesn't the culture start to degrade and disintegrate and become more worldly? And doesn't that happen to us? In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He told us just a couple of chapters before that, In your anger, don't sin, because in your anger, Satan can get a foothold. If he can cause you to care only about winning the temptation, temporal battles of this moment he gets you off the battlefield of the cosmic war and if that happens if you're off the battlefield of the cosmic battle between good and evil you're no longer playing the game for Jesus you are something else no matter what you call yourself you are something else if your life's mission is not that cosmic struggle to choose vengeance is to lose the eternal war in our desire to win temporal battles and to lose the battle for that space between stimulus and response. So strategy one was engage instead of enrage. Strategy two was to respond rather than resist. You can go back and catch up on these if you want to. Strategy three is to resolve rather than ruminate. Strategy four was to delay rather than detonate. I had a lot of fun with that one. And strategy five is to overcome rather than overreact. Overcome rather than overreact, we allow Christ to unwind that spring of our soul so that we are not just sitting here waiting to be prompted to lash out in revenge. When we take offense, we are defensive and we are self-deceptive. Now, when I thought of this whole thing a quote came to me in my brain, and it was amazing that it did, because it's a book I read almost 10 years ago. I don't know how many of you read the book or saw the movie Unbroken. Did you guys uh, see that? Uh, Laura, Laura Hillenbrand's book about, uh, about Louis Zapparini, and uh, Louis Zapparini, as many of you remember, was a long-distance runner. He was a winner by the world standards. He went to the 1936 Berlin Olympics, and, and when he competed in Germany in the Olympics, uh, he didn't win, but he, he made an honorable show. In 1941, of course, the war was underway, and, and Zamperini became a, a, a pilot in a, in a recovery plane, a, a big old plane in the Pacific, and, and as they were on a recovery mission, the plane broke down because many of them were, and it was ditched in the ocean, and he was on the ocean in a lifeboat for 47 days with some of his compatriots, but he survived, only to be captured by the Japanese in the Marshall Islands who put him in prison twice, two prisons, As a prisoner of war, and who tortured him and beat him daily because he was pretty well known in America and famous in America, who absolutely abused him and almost broke him, but he was unbroken. And the reason he was unbroken, you read it yourself, is because he was a follower of Jesus Christ and because he believed in the principle of forgiveness. And his whole life became about forgiving those who had wounded him because he recognized that his need for vengeance and retribution was eating out his heart. Heart, was killing his soul and was destroying him, was leaving all the wounds open. The whole book is about this. You've got to read it if you haven't. And so Zamperini, who was, became a famous evangelist, a teacher of the love of Christ, made his whole life mission, helping others to forgive those who had wounded them. This is the key, he said, to following Jesus. Bless those who persecute you, to forgive those who had wounded them. And he won the battle. And there's a quote in that book that just blew me away when I read it and I thought of it in this context. It says, The paradox of vengefulness is that it makes men dependent upon those who have harmed them, believing that their release from pain will come only when their tormentors suffer. Zamperini went on to say that is the biggest lie we're ever taught. Not only does it not work, but it leads us away from the love of Christ. And what he discovered is that when you give your life to Jesus, you have to stop giving it to everyone else, especially to those who hurt you, to those who wound you. Friends, the greatest power we have among them, is the glory not to take offense, but to go on the offense with Christ's love. It changes us, it will change others, and it will change the world if we can do it. So, Father, this call is deep and difficult and we struggle to live up to it, but we do understand it. Enter that space between stimulus and response in our souls through the power of the Holy Spirit and change us, Lord, from the inside out. And if there is anyone listening to my voice today who knows that what they are trying in terms of winning and losing by the world standards is just not working for them eternally, I pray that they would hear the voice of Jesus inviting them to come and with us to believe and to live and act on those beliefs. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia. Go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.